What up, what up, what up, what up? As you can tell by my voice, I'm super excited for what I'm about to bring you right now. We got a special midweek episode of the Format Podcast, and uh, I can't wait to deliver it. So I'm going to let you wait just a little bit longer. As soon as the intro music's done, I'll introduce our special guest. So sit back, relax, and listen up to episode 60 of the Format. College football has uh, only been over for about two months now, but I can say like a lot of people in this country, I'm already excited for the next season to get underway. And I really honestly don't even know how I'm going to make it until August. But while we wait to help bridge the gap for us, I have here today someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time. And um, we've got one of the most plugged in guys in college football Longtime Notre Dame football beat writer, now with the Athletic and co-host of the Shamrock Podcast, Pete Sampson. Pete, thanks so much for coming on to join me on the format today. Hey, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's get right to it. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is this: for the last few years, we've been hearing uh, some rumors circulating that maybe head coach Brian Kelly wouldn't be around at Notre Dame for too much longer, but he, obviously he's still there and that's not necessarily looking to be the case. And I'd also heard some rumors of the possibility of uh, maybe Urban Meyer ending up there. Is there any truth to any of it? And what have you heard about the stability of the head coaching position at Notre Dame? It's as stable as it's been in a while. I would, I would start with that. It's, uh, I think that Brian Kelly's contract extension in probably will be his last contract extension here is, has been sort of on the table. Um, you know, I don't want to say they have agreed to sort of the broad terms, but that's, that's basically the gist of what I've been told is it's been voted on by the board of trustees or at least seen by the board of trustees. Uh, I think Brian Kelly would like there to be some language in that contract that helps spur along the university to uh, renovate the goo or enhance it, um, you know, some academic spaces, some training table spaces, um, because once you get it in writing, then it gets done. And I think that's, that's important for Brian Kelly to get there. It's a little bit more complicated than just here's how much you're making. Uh, here's what your assistant salary pool is. Here's what your, your travel budget is. Um, so I think that will get done. I think Brian Kelly will be here a few more seasons. Um, it's remarkable when you think back. Like if you've been following Notre Dame football for a decade, yep. we got here, and the Philadelphia Eagles interview comes after three years, you would think, okay, this is, you know, the clock's ticking, uh, and he's not going to be long for this position. But I think he's really settled into this job, and I sat down with him last summer, and, and I mean, you know how college football coaches are. They, they don't really take a moment to take a step back and reflect on their position in life with a career and it was really one of the, the only times I've heard Brian Kelly say like yeah I can I can enjoy the view I can enjoy sort of the fruits of my labor here a little bit about the stability of the program um, you know where my coaching staff is what my roster looks like where my facilities are going um, I think he's as comfortable in this job as there ever been and in a lot of ways I think the Notre Dame job now is sort of the one he thought he was always getting 10 years ago or 11 years ago now uh, in terms of these, the talent and the roster, the stability, um, the facilities, all those things, it's, uh, it's as good of a job as he's had since he's been here, even though he's been at Notre Dame now for his 11th season. So still on the topic of the head coach, um, one of the things I heard uh, last year, I heard uh, ESPN and SEC mainstay Paul Feinbaum say after the Georgia loss that he believes Brian Kelly just isn't the guy to get Notre Dame over the hump, right? So obviously the talent gap has decreased, uh, you know, with the quote-unquote big boys in college football. And over the last few years, Notre Dame's consistently been a 10-win team. I think the last three seasons, which is uh, most recent since Lou Holtz, if I'm not mistaken. 
What do you think of Feinbaum's premise that Brian Kelly just isn't the coach to get Notre Dame over the hump? I think when it comes to the talent gap, uh, there's a a fair argument that Brian Kelly is is not the guy to get Notre Dame to Clemson, Georgia, Alabama uh, levels of just sort of raw talent. Don't don't forget Ohio State. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Ohio State for sure, obviously. Like, I don't think recruiting is a life-or-death proposition for him. Mm. Um, I think he's a fine recruiter, but I do think you have to sort of be a maniacal, uh, let-it-consume-your-life recruiter to get to that level. Are there a lot of coaches out there that recruit that way? Not really. Um, and Notre Dame has certainly some restrictions that make it harder. Yeah. Uh, one of, I, do, I don't think that the sort of academic requirements to get in are nearly as prohibitive as people make them out to be. It when I I wrote a story at the Athletic uh, about a month ago, just sort of how do, how does Brian Kelly actually take Notre Dame to sort of a top five recruiting operation the way that he described is you know likely it's it's a goal to shoot for, and the way the feedback that I got was like basically if you looked at the top fifty players in the country, um, you know Notre Dame could probably recruit half. 40% of them. Um, so there, there's some limitations out of the gate there, but I think there are enough guys, prospects nationally, that are looking for something a little bit different academically that also have the athletic chops to make it at Notre Dame. Uh, if those, you know, but you have to have a, a really dynamic recruiting staff to, to sell what Notre Dame is because it's so different from everybody else. I think he's got a good recruiting staff. Um, but I do think him getting more involved in recruiting, if he can sort of embrace the day-to-day monotony of recruiting, which is not fun and not glamorous, um, but it is really important. If he can get there, then maybe they can close the gap a little bit. But I I don't see a way for Notre Dame to ever have as much or more talent than Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State under current conditions. To me, it's more just like, can you shrink that gap enough so you can – you can get them on your on that day. Um, you know, I think the 2015 Notre Dame team was good enough to beat a Clemson or Ohio State on their day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the 2018 team that went to the playoff and, and got you know really beat up by Clemson. I'm not so sure I felt that way about that team, uh, but there's to me the, the goal for Notre Dame is is not to be in the playoffs every year, like Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, et cetera. It's to be in there every few years, and then when you get there, have a, good, a team good enough to, to really put a charge into some of the more regular teams. Got it. Um, so in discussing that talent gap, and you kind of touched on it, this is where I was going to go next. Obviously, recruiting for Notre Dame is a totally different ball game than most of those, you know, blue blood football powers you just mentioned. But for me, what I'm looking at is – At this point, Notre Dame's first 22 can normally match up pretty well with whoever they're playing, right? But it's, I think the difference is the depth, right? Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, like we mentioned, these guys have depth to where their third teams are good enough to be starters for most programs, right? And so I guess the bigger question is, what, and you you, you kind of touched on this, what can be done to... Uh, increase Notre Dame's depth in terms of having those high-level players coming off the bench? In reporting out the story and talking about recruiting coordinator Brian Foley, he thought the biggest thing is they need to do a better job of evaluating talent earlier, getting on not 2021 kids, but 2022 kids, like kids who are just finishing up their sophomore year of high school and figuring out, okay, who... Who among this group is the next Kyle Hamilton? How do how does Notre Dame have more sort of second teamers that look like that? Because mm-hmm. those are the players that really can make the difference that can enhance the depth that you're talking about. And I completely agree with you. I think Notre Dame can find a really good first 22. Mm-hmm. Um, can they find a next 22 to get to 44? Very rarely do you see I think Notre Dame's depth to be that good where you have five stars on the bench. Um, I think the issue is how do you get out and find the more Kyle Hamilton's earlier? Uh, I think that would sort of lead 
lead you to investing more in your scouting department, which is not really expensive as it is right now. I think Bill Reese does a very good job as sort of director of scouting. Um, give him some more help, and then go forward with that. If you can, if you can get ahead of the game, which I, Notre Dame feels like they are for the 2022 class, to me that that's how you you can get that depth better because you're you're getting a, a higher uh, quality of incoming prospect. I think that you know the freshman class this year will be very good. It's not a huge class, um, but I do think it's a class that is going to help their second and third team probably get a little bit better than it has been the last few years. Right. And speaking of uh, incoming players, not this season, but next season, I, I just thought about this. Is Tyler Buckner as good as advertised, or is part of that the competition he played against? Because I remember when Charlie Weiss brought in Jimmy Clausen, I believe he was the number one quarterback in the country. But there were questions about some some of the questions were who did he play against in high school. Um, is Tyler Buckner that good? Yeah, I to me, I went and saw Buckner play in October. There's no question that competition he's playing at is very low level. Okay. Um, there's actually a, a, trans, a, a chance that he will end up transferring high school to senior year uh, to Helix High School, which is where Reggie Bush and Alex Smith played. Uh, out of San, San Diego. Diego. Yep. Much higher, higher level competition. Uh, I'm not entirely clear as we're talking whether that's going to happen or not. Um, that would give you a much better read on how good he is. I I will just say, against lower level competition, it looked like a man against boys out mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has some, I think, traits that if you can throw over the top three quarters sidearm, if you can throw off platform, uh, if you can run away from everybody, uh, if you can run his own read, if you can call your own plays, like. That should work against anybody, or at least it's a skill set that you need against everybody. Um, is he Jimmy Clausen level coming out of high school? I don't think so. Uh, wow, okay. You know, that's a number one overall prospect, but mm-hmm. I do think he's got a chance to come in and, and press for the job as a freshman. Uh, but if he ends up going to Helix High School with a new coaching staff, new supporting cast, better competition you're really going to learn a lot more about what he is and is not. I mean, you're going to start, you're going to start to see some of the flaws in his game just because the competition is better. That's, and that's great at that age. Um, there are no such thing as perfect prospect. Mm-hmm. Um, but having, just having seen him in person, I think the personality, the competitive edge, the skill set, all that stuff is in a really good spot. Um, I, and I, I like him to be a hit once he gets to Notre Dame. Uh, but, there's no question the competition level to date is is low enough that it does make you look at it a little bit side-eyed and be like, okay, is this guy as good as I think? I'm not – it's hard to really answer that question, um, you know, until he, he faces better competition on a weekly basis. Okay. So transitioning a little bit from uh, incoming guys and recruiting, et cetera, Let's look at the guys that are at Notre Dame right now. And one thing that's sticking out to me um, early on, this particular Notre Dame team looks like the fastest I've ever seen on the field. And I've been watching Notre Dame since 1992. I might have missed 10 televised games since 92, <laughs> right? And so yeah. I, I like to think that I have a you know a, a fair vantage point or an ability to assess what I see from the Irish. And with that said... What type of impact do you think that speed could have on the offense? Because a lot of times we hear when it comes to Notre Dame, they don't have athletes, they don't have speed, which year in, year out at the combine and such and in the draft where, you know, Notre Dame is defying that by sending guys to the league and having really good performers. But that's a different issue, Um, especially at the receiver position where they look like they're going to have a loaded receiver group. Um what impact do you think that'll have on the offense? And the second part of that question is a lot of times last season, it looked like they just didn't go downfield and that led to a dearth of explosive plays in the passing game, even though you had a blue chipper like Claypool. So what do you think of that? Yeah, I do think that sort of the Kevin Austin, Braden Lindsay combination is as good as you're going to get as a, as a one-two punch in terms of pure speed. Mm-hmm. You know, is Braden Lindsay going to go out physically you the way Claypool and Miles Boykin did? No. no. Not, you know, that's, not, that's not their game at all. Uh, but it should let Notre Dame have more 
watching Kevin Austin in the first spring practice last week. You're watching him go up and catch jump balls over cornerbacks. And he doesn't just go up and catch them and then fall down, which, you know, Claypool did, Boykin did. It's, hey, if you can pick up 25-yard chunk plays, that's great. Uh, he goes up, catches the ball, and he's so athletic that he keeps his balance and then turns and runs it in for a touchdown, you know, 50 yards. I think that's going to be part of it. But to me, you know, if you're Braden Lindsay, you know, what were you, you know, you've been watching Notre Dame for a while. Mm-hmm. Will Fuller was a great deep threat. Yes. Yeah, that's true. But think about those tunnel screens that he ran where he catches the ball for, you know, one yard downfield or behind the line of scrimmage mm-hmm. and then runs it in for 50. Right. To me, that's, that's something that Braden Lindsay can do where that speed gets turned loose, not in downfield shots for me and Book, but. It lets Ian Book really play to one of his strengths, which is that short game accuracy. Right. And now, now you've got a Braden Lindsay who's a lot more confident, a lot more sure of himself, uh, and I think that's part of the passing game that you know Lindsay can really take advantage of. I think Austin could run those routes just as well. And if you get that going, then I think you have more explosive playmakers that will give you more chunk plays. That doesn't necessarily mean that Ian Book needs to muffle up and throw the ball 40 yards down the field. Um, But I I just think that Notre Dame's number two and number three receivers this year will be better than they have been over the last few years. And I think one of the Troy quote, he's like, your your receiver core is only as good as your number three receiver. And I think that, you know, anyone who's watched Notre Dame, they've had some really good number ones. They haven't had great number twos. And rarely have they had a three that they could even count on. Right. And I think if you go Austin, Lindsey, Keys, receiver, that tight end, who's uh, very athletic, I just think that some of their young skill talent has grown up a little bit. And it's going to be a lot more reliable than what Ian Book had to work with last year. So to kind of um, take it back just a little bit, one of the comments you just made in terms of the tunnel screens and getting getting the ball to – speed in space now that seems to be a brian kelly staple right since he's been there i've noticed that is something that he loves to do especially along the sidelines and it drives myself and probably other notre dame fans and people who watch him really closely crazy because when you play against the faster defenses that can really go sideline to sideline those plays become negative yardage instead of being in a situation where it's just in a playmaker's hands and they can go do something is that a matter of just calling the right plays at the right time against those defenses? Or do we need to? Because I'm a proponent of you got to take more shots downfield, especially if you have weaponry with that type of speed. But it seems like you're more along the lines of pick your shots and take them. But at the same time, you're in line with the Brian Kelly philosophy of getting the ball to playmakers in space. Um, how far off am I on my stance on what they should be doing with that type of elite athleticism. Well, I think it, it kind of fits together with what we were just talking about. It's like you can call those plays if the guy in space is Braden Lindsay or Will Fuller. If you're throwing to, you know, Michael Young was just an okay receiver in the last couple of years, or you know, Braden Lindsay before who was confident and didn't trust his hands. Like those weren't winning plays. Um, you know, I I would compare it to the run game last year versus the run game two years ago mm-hmm. where they ran a lot of the same plays. But you but didn't have a Josh Adams. Like Lynchy, Nelson, Josh Adams, you know, that was the crux of the play. When the crux of the play is Tony Jones, Aaron Banks, Jared Patterson, or Liam Eikenberg, like that's just not as effective. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am of the mindset that Notre Dame had less offensive talent last, last year than people were led to believe by Brian Kelly. Um, I didn't see last year's team beyond Claypool and, and Cole come at their tight end as being overly talented. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this year's group will be better if Jafar Armstrong is the player that we thought he was going to be before he's the abdominal tear against Louisville. Um, I think the receiver rotation, even though you lose a stud like Cole Komet, can be more balanced than what it was last year. Uh, Cole Komet is obviously a big loss at tight end. I do think they have some material there. And then you have a, a fifth-year senior quarterback who has the trust of the entire roster. So it's, I guess in terms of the plays we're talking about, I just don't think last year's team had a whole lot of strengths other than throw the ball to Claypool 
and go and let them go get it. I think this year's team, some of the, those plays that got blown up last year because that maybe the the guys that they're trying to work on are not supremely talented. I, I think those that type of player is just going to be better this year. Um, and so, would I like to see deep shots to Braden Lindsay, Kevin Austin? Yes, I think they could do that a lot more than they do. Well, maybe not a lot more, but they could do it more. Um, but I think some of those slower developing plays that drive fans nuts when they don't work will probably be more likely to work this year because the players are running the plays are more talented. Okay. Um, you mentioned Josh Adams and McGlinchey and, and Quentin Nelson. And so that brings me to my next question. Um, Notre Dame's uh, offensive line, I believe, has all five starters returning, correct? That's right, yep. How effective do you think that unit is going to be? And as well, um, you've got uh, the, the renowned freshman Chris Tyree coming in, who I don't expect to be a three-down back. I think he just doesn't have the, the size and the physicality yet. He's got elite speed. But um, what do we expect from the Notre Dame run game this year? Because in the two biggest games last year, they were clearly unable to effectively run the football. And, you know, that means if you make a team play one-handed, then it's a lot easier to beat them. What do we expect from their uh, run game this season? Yeah, one of the, the biggest disappointments of spring to me already is just that the offensive line is not going to be able to work together as five, really, I think, at, at any point during the next four weeks. Maybe they'll get a little bit of sort of half-speed reps towards the end, but Aaron Banks has a foot injury, he's out. Tommy Kramer had the knee injury against Michigan last year. He's sort of on a, a pitch count, so to speak. Uh, Robert Hainsey, the right tackle, had a sort of broken ankle against Virginia Tech. He's limited. So it's like for that group to get a lot better, they need to work together. Um, and they'll have that chance in August, but spring seemed like a good chance for them to assert themselves as the group that was going to carry the team. They can't really do that. Um, the running back position... I agree with you. Chris Tyree is not going to come in and get 20 carries a game. Uh, very few running backs actually do that, um, short of Josh Adams two years ago, three years ago now. Mm. But um, you need you need something from Jafar Armstrong that you didn't get last year. Um, he's had a really bad run of injuries to date. So, you know, it's been tough for him to sort of work his way through. Um, and then Chris Tyree maybe can give you a little bit something uh, if he can slot into the college game uh, quickly, which is difficult for a freshman. But to me, it's like the offensive line, if we're talking about Nuren's run game or where it needs to get better, even though Brian Kelly insists the offensive line was fine last year and they ran the ball well, I don't think they passed the eye test at all. Georgia, Michigan, for example, mm-hmm. they weren't able to run the ball in either of those, those matchups. And I'm not saying that Nuren needs to go out and run for 250 yards on Michigan or – 175 yards on Georgia, but they didn't even have the materials to attempt to run the ball at Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. At Michigan, it was just a, I think, a system-wide meltdown. Yeah. Um, and they fell behind early. I guess it was 17-7 in the second half, but still, it didn't feel like they were there. Um, the weather and the weather was poor, but their run game was getting pushed back all all night. Um, you know, if Notre Dame's offensive line is going to be better, they're going to be better on. Uh, third and one, third and two running the ball. And they're going to be able to run the ball on a team like Wisconsin, a team like Clemson. They haven't really done that the last few years. They, this is this is a team that should be able to do that. It's as experienced an offensive line as Brian Kelly has had here in terms of returning starters. Uh, and they need a surprise at running back, whether it's Jafar Armstrong or Jameer Smith or Steve Flemister or even Chris, or even Chris Tyree or Kyron Williams. It doesn't really matter. They just they just need a surprise at running back uh, to step forward. Because Tony Jones was a player that maxed out his ability, but mm-hmm. there's you know there's only so much you can do with a running back who's you know kind of a four seven high four six back. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to have a whole lot of explosive plays when you're not running away from linebackers. I think Jafar Armstrong can run away from people. Chris Tyree definitely can run away from people. Um, so it, we'll sort of see how that shakes out the running back position. But to me, it, it all starts with that offensive line. That group has to be better, uh, even if Brian Kelly just that they were very good last year. So is there anyone in that running back room who is capable of 20 carries a game? I don't think so. And I, I 
think that's okay. There's, you know, I don't, I don't think college football is in a space anymore where you one, you play one running back. Um, you know, if you have a rotation of Jafar Armstrong uh, getting 15 carries a game, and then Sebo Fulmister and Jameer Smith are getting five carries a game, maybe Chris Tyree gets a few touches, Kyron Williams gives you a couple touches, it's pretty easy to get to 35 carries. You know, and the quarterback is a, is a runner now. Um, so Ian Book's going to get you five carries a game. It's, it's pretty easy to get to 40 carries a game uh, without having any one person have 20 of them. And I think that's just sort of where college football is today. I, you know, if Notre Dame had Adrian Peterson, I would love it if he got 25, 30 carries a game, but they don't. Um, so I think you're better off rotating through those guys because there's not uh, any true number one backs from that group. I think Jafar Armstrong could be, but he hasn't gone out and, and been able to stay healthy and really shown it yet. So let's talk scheme a little bit. Obviously, we um, anyone who is knowledgeable or remotely interested in, in Notre Dame football knows that offensive coordinator Chip Long is now gone from the team. Uh, former Notre Dame quarterback and quarterbacks coach uh, Tommy Reese is the offensive coordinator. What do you think about that hire or that promotion, I should say, and do you think that Tommy Reese is the guy that can unlock the potential of this Notre Dame offense, or is he a guy that Brian Kelly feels comfortable with, he knows him, he knows he knows the system, and maybe, if need be, he can kind of pull the strings a little bit, or am I looking at that wrong from an outsider perspective? I don't, I mean, definitely Brian Kelly feels comfortable with Tommy Reese. I don't think he hired Reese to sort of get to a long game of him calling plays or getting more involved in the offense. And he doesn't want to do that. Is Tommy Reese the guy to unlock the potential of some of these offensive players that, you know, didn't click last year? I think that remains to be seen. Um, you know, there's this interesting sort of dance between the offense needs to be a lot better, um, you know, the run game needs to be better. And then looking at, well, they averaged about, I think, 38 points a game last year. Um, you know, the high of the Brian Kelly era. They scored a bunch of points. Um, they, it, But it just didn't feel like a super efficient operation there. To me, I would like to see a little bit more tempo in what they run. You know, I'll be curious to see how Reese sort of plays that out. You should be able to do that with a more experienced quarterback um, to take advantage of pace. Um, but in terms of the scheme itself, I'm not sure how different it's going to be uh, in terms of play calling. I'm not sure how different that's going to be either. It's really difficult to sit here and say, this is what the offense is going to look like based on one game of uh, Tommy Reese calling plays. You know, there will be some subtle adjustments, but um, I think overall, I don't, I don't expect a huge difference in, in terms of the style of offense that they're, they're running. Maybe, maybe they'll do a little bit less RPO. I don't know if that's a natural sort of system for Ian Book. Um, it, was what the, it was what Chip Long wanted to run. But um, I think that uh, is Tommy Reese the guy? It's kind of a question that you're going to have to wait till mid-September or early October to answer. Mm-hmm. So now... Let's kind of move forward, and you've touched on some of this already, but I want to try and nail you down a little bit. So excluding quarterback Ian Book, who we know has to play well, and honestly speaking, better than last season for this team to get where it truly wants to be and achieve what it wants to achieve, give me three impact players on offense that Notre Dame and Notre Dame fans can be excited about heading into the season. Kevin Austin, for me, is an easy number one there. You know, if you have not been following Notre Dame closely, when he gets on the field against Navy in Ireland and he puts up 100 yards, you're like, wait a minute, who's this guy? Uh, suspended last year, played a little bit as a freshman, but not a lot. Uh, I think that he is a true number one receiver. I think Jafar Armstrong is, while he has played a lot and is a senior, and it sounds strange to say, like, a senior would be a new impact player. We just haven't seen the best from him, and I, I do think that there's a dynamic running back and sort of do everything, catch the ball on the backfield player there. You know, and if you want to go to a deeper cut, Michael Mayer, the tight end, uh, an incoming freshman, not even here yet, a lot of sort of the 
Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati area. I've written on him, interviewed him, talked to his family. I do think that he's, he's very much cut from the Kyle Rudolph cloth of tight ends, maybe not as tall as Rudolph is, but athletically just moves in a way that six foot four, six foot five, two hundred forty, two hundred fifty pound guys are not supposed to move. Um, maybe more of a player for twenty twenty one than twenty twenty. Uh, but when he gets on the field this season, he is definitely gonna be worth tracking. Now let's look at the other side of the ball. Um Clark Lee to me, is one of the best defensive coordinators in the country. I'm not saying that because I'm a Notre Dame fan. I'm saying that because I've watched him. I've seen what he's been able to do. For instance, everyone thought Georgia was going to steamroll Notre Dame last season. They did a tremendous job holding DeAndre Swift really, you know, just about 100 yards after he had just been running rush shot over everyone. He's really awesome, and he doesn't have a defense, Clark Lee, that's chock full of the blue chippers like Georgia or Bama or Ohio State or anything like that, even though he does have some talent. But give me three guys on defense now that we should be looking forward to going into the season as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll pass on Kyle Hamilton, the safety, and Jeremiah Wusukormo and the linebackers. I think if you watched Notre Dame last year, mm-hmm. you know how good those guys are. Yeah. Um, you know, so like kind of a deeper cut from that group. Houston Griffith had an outstanding first practice. I realize it's one practice, but Notre Dame is looking for another safety. And if Griffith, who was a top 100 player coming out of high school and now he's a junior, has not played a ton, if what we saw in day one is something that he can replicate over and over and over again, then I think he could be a very dynamic part of this defense. And while replacing Alohi Gilman and Jalen Elliott's safety is going to be very difficult in terms of leadership, um, I think from a talent perspective, Notre Dame, Notre Dame can get that done. If Hamilton is Hamilton and then Houston Griff, Griffith is, is sort of the surprise player, we think. I, you know, a guy that maybe you haven't watched a lot of defensive tackle, uh, Justin Admiola, or sorry, Jason Admiola from the New York area. I, I think he is a highly productive first snap player. I would sort of describe him as like one of those NBA players that his scoring average over 48 minutes would be like 42 points, but he only plays 10 minutes a game. Mm. Um, every time he's in the game, he seems to make a play. And I think as a pass rushing defensive tackle, those are, those are very difficult to find. I think he's got a chance to be very, very good. Um, and he already has, but I think it's just, it's more a case of how do you expand his role? How do you get him more work? Uh, Cause if you do, then I, th- I think you're going to get some production. And then the third guy, Ade Ogundeje, he's actually a fifth-year senior now. Played a bunch last year, but was, has always sort of been behind Julian Aquara, behind Khalid Kareem. Now he's going to be a starter full-time. I think that he is built like a future NFL defensive end in terms of how long and lanky he is. And I, I think he's got a chance to have a great final season at Notre Dame. So a couple defensive linemen um, and then a safety to mix with some of the more established guys like Ousu Koromo and I think Kyle Hamilton obviously is going to be a star. There's, there's no great insight in saying that. But I think Notre Dame, if they can get those a few guys to really emerge and take a step forward, this defense should be just as good as what Clark Lee has had the, the first couple of years. So one of the things that we've kind of been highlighting so far throughout this discussion is Notre Dame's continually increasing level of talent, right? And so one of the things I wanted to touch on with you was, and this is something I talked about on previous episodes of the podcast, and especially now around draft time and, and evaluation and all that, right? It's generally held Notre Dame guys aren't fast, Notre Dame guys aren't athletes, et cetera, et cetera. The general mindset among college football is all the great players come out of the SEC, right? Um, so I actually did the math on it last year. Notre Dame had six players drafted, four undrafted rookie free agents. And that actually tops the average of the SEC, which was about four and a half players drafted per school. So that kind of bites back on that narrative, although it's really hard to change people's minds from narrative, no matter how many facts you submit. What do you think um, is really contributing to the fact that Notre Dame's players are getting, is it the guys they're getting in? Is it the strength and conditioning program that they've put in place? What's contributing to the fact that they are continually putting 
guys into the NFL that are better athletes? I think strength and conditioning has a lot to do with it. Uh, I think that Matt Bayless and the program they run over there is outstanding. It's, it's really one of the biggest reasons you're seeing the Miles Boykin combine performance, the Chase Claypool combine performance. Um, they've had some really good outputs there in Indianapolis the last couple of years. And I, the SEC, I think when people say all the talent's coming out of the SEC, what they're really saying is all the talent's coming out of Alabama, LSU, Georgia. <laughs> right. Um, Describe the SEC. No one's talking about Mississippi State, Vanderbilt, um, Arkansas, right? And, yeah. yeah, Arkansas. I mean, and that's that's a fair point. I mean, you look at the NFL draft by conference, the combine invites by conference. The SEC dominates that, and that doesn't mean Notre Dame can't also have talent. Like Kyle Hamilton is from Georgia. He's from Atlanta. Mm-hmm. That's SEC country. You know, Jeremiah Usukorma is from Virginia. That's more ACC country, but not really outside of the SEC footprint. Kevin Austin's from Florida, that's the SEC footprint. Mm-hmm. So, Notre Dame can go in these places and pull guys out. Um, you know, that's that's not an issue at all. Um, you know, so, Notre Dame compared to the SEC, I think the whole SEC speed thing, I mean, we all watched LSU last year. They had a lot of speed, whether that, whether that was speed for the ACC, the SEC, or the NFL, it didn't really matter. Um, you know, is Notre Dame ever going to have that level of speed? Probably. I, I hesitate to say ever, but are they going to have backup receivers who are, you know, five-star prospects? Pretty rarely. You know, maybe that can happen sometimes, but um, I don't know. It's, I, I look at Notre Dame's speed and say, it's, it's fine. Like, they're not going to lose these games to high-end teams because their team speed is low. Um, they they have enough skill players, I think, to to put a charge into a Clemson or an Alabama. You know, to me, it's more how do you take what your identity is and make it great, make it elite. To me, that's offensive line play, tight end play, and then figuring out how you get your quarterback from really good to great. Uh, if you could do that then I think that's how you beat those teams, not trying to out-athlete them. Um, Because I I just don't think the math works out for Notre Dame to have. I mean, you look at Alabama's receiver room right now, Notre Dame is not going to have a receiver room like that where their fourth receiver has a 43-inch vertical jump, um, you know, and can run a 4-2. That's just not realistic for Notre Dame. But that doesn't mean they can't have a great offensive line and an elite tight end and a really good quarterback and then two outstanding receivers instead of five. Um, to me, I think Nerding's formula for being great and winning in the college football playoff is just a little bit different than it is for some of those SEC schools. Right. Let's kind of look at the schedule for the upcoming season now. I'm looking at it, I'm saying Notre Dame at worst should finish with another 10-win season. I don't know if you truly love Notre Dame football, if you should be satisfied with that or not, because those 10-win seasons are usually coming at the cost of not being able to win those games, and we know what those games are. So I see the only possible losses on this schedule, providing that they don't lose focus anywhere and have a blip game, and we, we've all heard the it's hard to get uh, you know a team of 18 to 22-year-olds to play consistently every week, right? But... Um, for me, the only two games that should really be, you know, games that would be tough to win are Wisconsin and Clemson. Tell me what you see against those two schools in particular, and is this the year that Notre Dame can finally win one of those games that they aren't supposed to win? And by the way, I, I love that Clemson will be at Notre Dame in November. I will be praying for a blizzard. <laughs> But, yeah, tell me, what what do you think? Do you think that this is a year that can happen, and what do you see with those two teams? You know, it's like the Clemson game, very rarely do you even get to play that kind of game Mm. in Notre Dame Stadium. I mean, it's so interesting to me that Stanford, uh, two years ago, was the first time Brian Kelly had not only beaten a top-ten team at home, but even played one. Um, So they – and we're talking about a decade of home games, and – 
they just haven't had those kinds of opportunities to play top 10 teams, let alone maybe number one teams, which is probably where Clemson's going to be at that point of the season. So I, you know, is this, is this the year that Notre Dame gets somebody like that? It could be, uh, you know, Clemson is going to be number one for a reason and their matchup with Notre Dame with Trevor Lawrence, Justin Ross, um, they are incredibly talented. That's going to be a very difficult game for Notre Dame to win. But it's in November at night. Could be freezing cold. Right. Um, we'll see. It's, I, it's interesting to me. I, I did sort of a poll on social media just as kind of a kind of a thought experiment. And if you're a Notre Dame fan, would you rather go 10 I saw and, that. and beat Clemson or go 11-1 and one but have the loss be at home to Clemson? So you didn't really win those games or those or that game um, so to speak well, I'll tell and you was, I want 10 and 2 in beating Clemson split. yeah it was ultimately that was the majority voted for 10 and 2 but beat Clemson which I thought was pretty interesting um, just because I think it speaks to the uh, hunger and starvation of winning that kind of game mm-hmm. where you beat you beat a team that nobody thought you were going to beat or very few people thought you were going to beat and you're sort of the, the college football story for a weekend. Um, I don't think beating Wisconsin at, in Lambeau is going to necessarily move the needle for Notre Dame being the story in college football. Beating Clemson absolutely would do that. Um, whether you're 10-2 and two or 9-3 uh, or 11-1, that would be kind of a night that would you know, sort of shake up what's possible around Notre Dame football in terms of the outside perception of it. So it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't have an answer for you on like whether this year you can beat Clemson, but they came within one second of beating USC in 2005, which is really the last time Notre Dame has played this kind of home game. Um, there's no reason why they can't be right there with Clemson. Um, you know, the environment should be incredible. Um, Notre Dame has experience at the right positions if they're healthy. You know, the five starters back on the offensive line, the third-year starting quarterback, the emerging wide receivers. There's just a lot to like about Notre Dame uh, in that environment. But Clemson has not lost a regular season game in a long, long time. Um, and that's, But, I mean, that's part of the reason why that matchup and why that night's going to be so great at Notre Dame Stadium. Yeah. Finally, uh, I know, obviously, that your focus is on Notre Dame, but let's talk for a minute. What do you see in general from the upcoming college football season? Do you see more of the same? And secondly, do you see the playoff expanding? Because for me, I do. There's just too much money to be had by expansion, and I can't see the NCAA, you know, not getting that money by not expanding. And I think that six teams is ideal but I also don't have objection to eight. Your thoughts on those two questions? I, you know, in terms of the playoff, I think it makes too much sense not to do it. You know, you take the other New Year's Six games, fold them into the playoff, and I think you have a, a pretty natural uh, bracket there of eight teams. I don't like the idea of automatic bids necessarily, but I, I think you're probably going to have to give some ground uh, if you're if you're Notre Dame on that um, to get that done. Mm-hmm. We'll see how we'll see how that works out. I'd rather than just pick the best, eight best teams and go with it, opposed to guaranteeing access to a Memphis or a Boise State or whoever the top-ranked Power Five or Group of Five team is. But um, yeah, there's just there's too much money to be made. Uh, I think the playoff has really been. It's surprising to me how everything is viewed through the prism of the playoff now. Uh, whereas if you don't make the playoff, your season is just kind of like ho hum. Uh, I think that expanding it would help a lot of teams feel like they have more on the line for longer in the season. I think it would increase interest in the season, uh, opposed to, you know, the reverse. I like, uh, and it's not to say that I don't like the 14 playoff. I, I sort of like the anarchy that it can create when one conference makes it with two bids or Notre Dame makes it, uh, cause then if somebody's getting left out and there's, you know, kind of a, some drama involved with that. So, I, I, I think it will expand. It's, not, it's probably you know five years away still when the when the current contract ends. Uh, in terms of where college football is going, I think that the playoff has really sort of consolidated power at the top. It's a situation where 
you're in, then that fuels your recruiting because you're getting so much exposure, especially free media, to put it in political terms, when you make the playoff, that, that makes your recruiting even better, which makes it more likely you're going to go the next year. Mm. And it's just this, psych, this virtuous cycle of players concentrating at these four or five schools that feel like they're playoff regulars. I, I don't see that changing. I think the playoff makes it harder for a team like Notre Dame to sort of break that up um, and become a, a team that looks at its season as its playoff or bust. I don't think Notre Dame's there yet. Um, whereas I think Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, Oklahoma are there right now. LSU might be getting close. But um, I, I just think that the playoff is concentrated for, at the top even more than it already has been. Uh, and I don't really see that changing until the playoff is so let me give you two issues I have with the playoff, not to go down the rabbit hole, but issue number one is the blatant and rampant SEC bias. I get it. They have good teams at the top of that conference. But what I see is the fact that the committee is deliberately keeping the SEC teams ranked high so that when they beat each other, it doesn't knock them out of contention, right? This is my conspiracy theory. It doesn't knock them out of contention because it seems to me their goal is always to have two SEC teams in every year. And, you know, they try their darndest to get that because you can always see the losses for SEC teams are not treated the same way as they are for other teams. Quick example, last year, Wisconsin lost to unranked Illinois. That was seen as a terrible loss, knocked them out of the top 10. Now, they didn't end up being, they ended up, I think, 10-3 and three anyway. But at the time, they were one of the best teams in the country. They lost, they get knocked out of the top 10. Georgia loses to South Carolina, who I think finished 4-8. and eight. Should have been a worse loss, but doesn't get penalized nearly as badly in the rankings and by the committee. So, the SEC bias and everything they are doing to manipulate the rankings to keep SEC teams near the top is extremely frustrating to me. Um, problem number two is the committee's, I'm not going to say inability, but absolute resistance to transparency in terms of not making their standards um, open and available to everyone so that we all can see what criteria they are using to choose their teams. Because it seems like they switch it year by year and sometimes even week by week. Uh, your thoughts on my two issues with the playoff? I think the second one is tough because ultimately it's a subjective ranking, right? And so I don't know if the criteria that they use one year should automatically be what they use the next year. Uh, I I hear what you're saying on the, on the first point where the Georgia, South Carolina, and Wisconsin-Illinois dynamic was very strange last year. I thought Georgia really should have got hammered more than they were, uh, but they got a lot of credit for beating Notre Dame, and I think that's ultimately what kept them up is kind of that strength of schedule out of conference, uh, which I, I like. I, I like that teams would be rewarded for challenging themselves out of conference. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how many times have the SEC had two teams in once in six years? If I'm not mistaken, you know, when Georgia and Alabama ultimately played for the national championship a few a couple of years ago? Yes. Um, I don't, and I, look, the idea of the SEC having no teams in, I don't, that seems crazy to me because when we were talking about this earlier and whether it's recruiting rankings coming in or combine NFL draft show at the, at the coming out, the SEC is at the top. So I, I feel like the SEC champ is, that's, that should be almost an automatic bid, and it has been every year um, at the expense of the Pac-12, um, at the expense of maybe the Big Ten runner-up sometimes. I get, I get that, but uh, it, it's hard for me to imagine a playoff where the, whoever wins the SEC championship game isn't in the playoff. I get that. Um, and, then there, and then there was one time where Alabama did not win its division but made the playoff uh, mm -hmm. and ultimately made it to the championship game. That, you know, that, that's a little bit more of an outlier. If that was happening regularly, I would definitely be sort of more in your camp of, okay, this is kind of some funny business here with the SEC to ensure that two teams are making it. The year that two teams did make it, ultimately, they played for the national title. So it's kind of hard for me to sit there and be like, well, that was the committee got that wrong. 
Oklahoma played an incredible Rose Bowl. Could have gone either way. Mm-hmm. Baker Mayfield, uh, Oklahoma versus freshman Jake Brom. Yep. Um, the team that, that Georgia team ultimately came to Notre Dame and barely won again for Warner yep. up out of conference uh, schedule. And then Alabama that year, you know, was that a great Alabama team? I'm, you know, it was Jalen Hurts, and then it was Tua. Ultimately, they win the national championship. I'm not sure that was you know, a vintage Alabama team by Nick Saban standards, but still, it's kind of hard to argue with the team that won the national championship as if they, they shouldn't have been in the playoff, even though they, they didn't win their division. I think it's part of the, the problem with the four teams. Now, if you go to eight teams, then there's two SEC teams in all the time. I think in a lot of ways, playoff expansion would add fuel to the SEC by its fire opposed to taking it away. So, you know, there's kind of some push-pull there. I'm not, I'm not really sure what the right answer is. That's fair. That's fair. And lastly, did you, um, I know you, it's still early, have you taken a look kind of outside of the Notre Dame sphere and just even prognosticated out to who you see winning the national championship this year? I have not. Um, I have, you know, it's kind of a, a June project for me, mm-hmm. you know, kind of when the Phil Steele stuff comes out or we mm-hmm. do the state of the programs on the athletic and sort of parsing through all that, you know, some of that is schedule-based. Um, but like we were talking about a minute ago, I think that there's a concentration at the top of the sport now that just gets tighter and tighter every year. And if you could give me Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and I'll give you everybody else. I would take Alabama, Clemson, or Ohio State to win the national championship. Fair enough. I wouldn't think twice about it. That's fair. Can't argue that. All right. Well, um, Pete, thank you so much for for coming in today. This has been a great talk. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, this opportunity to talk to you and, and, uh, you know, really get some quality insight. I really appreciate it and uh, hope to have you on again sometime in the future. Definitely. Down the road, thanks for having me on.